This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. I am your host, Dana Garcia, and our guest today is Andy Hale. Andy is a civil rights attorney from Chicago who also specializes in wrongful convictions. Andy is also a documentary film producer whose credits include A Murder in the Park and White Boy. And you have yet one more documentary coming out um, on HBO soon, right, Andy? Yeah, there's a, there's a documentary coming out December 14th and 15th about the Star Rock murders that happened in 1960. That show's called Murders at Murdered Star Rock. So next week it'll be on HBO. There'll be three episodes, two on December 14th and a third on December 15th. Yeah, I've represented Chester Weger now for the last several years. I believe he's innocent. I've been working uh, uh, very hard for his case the last few years, and we just got approval to do DNA testing, which we can talk about in a bit. Uh, and I'm excited about, you know, the possibility of proving his innocence. So we're going to discuss that case in a little bit more detail. But first, we have a case also out of Illinois where a woman who is very well known in her community for being supportive and being an advocate for domestic violence survivors a woman who taught self-defense classes to victims, she has been murdered herself. She was found dead on Thanksgiving with a man that she was dating. And police say that it was her ex-boyfriend who was jealous that there was a new man in her life who committed this atrocity. Andy, I'm sure you see this all the time in domestic violence cases. You know, domestic violence cases, it's its one of the most heartbreaking and it's one of the most emotional. That's why you see so much violence with it, that emotion and passion from a broken relationship. You see this a lot of times also uh, on domestics and uh, police trying to get involved and uh, somebody shoots another spouse. Um, 
it is just heartbreaking. And especially here when the victim was this advocate for domestic violence, you know, and she and she's got training. She trains other people in self-defense techniques. I mean, she is savvy to the safety of herself. And it just goes to show you, you couldn't have anybody more sophisticated about those issues than her. And she still was unable to protect herself. And I think that's what's so sad because she, the fact that she was also a voice and a support for others, it's, it's left this vacuum. And I think when you're in the middle of it and you're being chased and you're being abused and you lose someone who you trust to help you, to save you, to pull you out of the difficult times, I think it makes so many more survivors and victims feel that much more vulnerable. If they can take her down, what chance do I have? Absolutely. I mean, if they can, if they can take her down, if they can find her, uh, kill her, uh, without any parent struggle. Uh, and if you're somebody out there who sees that, I would be so scared. And it just realizes in a high profile case, you know, uh, let's talk about something where somebody is kind of unknown and is kind of a nobody. Um, there are so many women out there who are in that position and it is just a very scary, you could have an order of protection, doesn't matter. You know, I mean, um, you can't control somebody from showing up at your house or confronting you in the parking lot of a grocery store or wherever you might be going, you know, tracking you, following you. That's the scary part. It really is, Andy. I've seen that so many times in the cases that I've covered and the cases we've talked about here. So let's get into more detail here. We're talking about 45-year-old Leslie J. Reeves of Troy. She was shot in the head execution style. Police say that it happened on the night before Thanksgiving. Leslie was a local businesswoman. She ran not only self-defense classes, but also a fitness center in Troy. She taught the self-defense classes to survivors of domestic abuse, and she was also a public speaker on the topic. Leslie ran a class called Girls with Guns, a course for women who taught women how to use guns safely to defend themselves. So she was spending the evening with a new man in her life, Christopher Smith. The two were at his home in Farmerville, Illinois, when police say a jealous ex-boyfriend of Leslie's came after them. 48-year-old Robert Tarr. So according to the Montgomery County prosecutor, Tarr killed Leslie and then attempted to kill Christopher Smith but Christopher survived and is in critical condition. The shooting took place at Christopher Smith's house. Tar denies doing it. He denies even leaving his house. Police claim that they have evidence to the contrary, and they have charged Tar with murder and attempted murder. Investigators believe that the shooting occurred on the night before Thanksgiving, but the two were not found until Thanksgiving day around 1245 when Montgomery County Sheriff's deputies conducted a welfare check because they were both expected at Thanksgiving, at their own Thanksgiving. And so family and friends started to get really nervous about something is not right here. And what we haven't learned yet, Andy, is more about the relationship between Tar, the accused killer, and Leslie. 
and what happened there. I don't believe there were any restraining orders. So, right. so what's not clear to us is, was this something that had escalated? Um, had he been violent in the past or was this something that just happened? So I think what's particularly scary about this case is it's a case where apparently there were no orders of protection. There's nothing from the court records we know of to indicate, you know, there had been orders of protection or court hearings. Um, in cases where there are, you can understand that there's been a history of, you know, incredible volatility, oftentimes violence, physical abuse. Um, here, if there were no orders of protection and it's unclear what the status of their past relationship was, it's even scarier. It could be a situation where, you know, you had no idea that your ex was this volatile. You had no idea that your ex could basically do something like this. So you're even, you're, you're not on guard as you pot potentially would be if you're in a case where there have been orders of protection, your spouse you know is, is, is unhinged, your ex. Um, here, it could be something where it's under the surface and you have no idea that this person has snapped. And that to me is what's even scarier because it shows you that it can happen in cases where there hasn't been this big past explosive history potentially. And again, the fact that she is so well trained, so aware of her own surroundings, that if there wasn't a history and this was a complete surprise to her, it might have explained why she had her guard down. Well, what's interesting to me is it happened at uh, the house of the guy she was on a date with. So it's the night before Thanksgiving. I saw an article from a statement from uh, the the man's sister, the victim, you know, who got shot, Mr. Smith's sister. Apparently, it was their first time meeting in person, their first in-person date. So if you're going over to somebody's house on a date. Uh, you're not strapping your gun to your ankle or you're not probably even thinking about needing a gun. But what's interesting to me is how did the how did uh, the guy get in the house? And I saw some reference to it being a close, you know, contact wound. You know, the yes. gun was basically pressed close to the head. So I'd like to hear more about, you know, did he sneak into the house? Because um, if they did let him in, then that's even more evidence of the fact that uh, the victim probably wasn't that concerned. Right. Other than the incredible surprise of what are you doing here? Because you're very far from home. Right. And yeah. you should you know, not be at at this man's house because you don't even know Christopher. I'm just starting to get to know him. I did see reference to the fact that the police checked the phones of both Miss Reeves and Mr. Tarr. And they saw evidence that he was aware of where she was. So I don't know if that's from a text between her and him. You know, where are you? What are you doing tonight? You know, who knows how that played out? And I think that's also another clue. Um, if there's a text message talking about where she is, it sounds to me like that was potentially just a voluntary conversation, again, where you're maybe not thinking you know, this person is in the state of mind where they are that you wouldn't tell them where you're at, right? If, if they're even texting each other, no matter what the content is, I think that's an indication that the relationship, you know, was not um, completely, you know, non-communicative. Um, so 
I would I'm dying to hear more details about, you know, some of the specifics. Yeah. And we may not get those for a while, obviously, since he's just been charged. And again, Tar says that he is innocent, that he was not even there. But we'll get into some of the other details that uh, authorities say are to the contrary, such as that text message and also license plate readers in the area. Uh, We'll get into that. Picked up his car. So he may have been home, he claims, but then why was his car (laughs) out and about at the same time that these murders apparently happened? So when deputies arrived, at Christopher's house. They found that Leslie was dead. Christopher was still alive. He was taken to a hospital in Springfield, which is about 25 miles away. So that's that's a long ride in an ambulance when you are in critical condition. The state's attorney says that the gunshot was so severe that Smith was unable to move or make a call for help in all the hours after the shooting. So can you imagine the agony of this of this moment? So if he's not found until lunchtime on Thanksgiving and we think that the attack happened the night before, he could have been there for more than 12 hours in this agony, unable to move, call for help. Meanwhile, we don't know at what point Leslie died. So now you have the added trauma of either watching her die or being next to her while she is dead. I, that is horrific. You know, this, this, this young man, uh, Mr. Smith, you know, he's on a first date with with Leslie Reeves. Uh, it's the night before Thanksgiving. He's got to be probably so excited, so happy to host her, excited to meet her. Um, you know, it sounds by all accounts, she's a wonderful person. Uh, I can't, it would never even fathom, you would never even cross your mind. I always think of it this way, picture having a watch that showed you how long you have to live. Now, I would not choose to look at that watch. Right. I, I, I don't want to know. But if Christopher Smith looked at his watch when Leslie Reeves showed up and said, oh, my God, my watch says 10 minutes. You could not even fathom how or why your life is going to end. You know, that night you're on a date. You're 48 years old. You're in the prime of your life. Um, it couldn't have ever crossed this guy's mind that that would happen, even if this, even when the ex-boyfriend shows up, if he did right? You're still not thinking that. Um, And what's really scary to me is a relationship, somebody can be, can snap in these domestic violence situations. So it's not just a verbal altercation. It's not just a physical altercation, some kind of a fight. It is literally killing two people, you know, somebody you know, and somebody you don't know. And then your life is over. Your life is over. And to think that somebody can get in a state of mind where they can commit an act of violence like that, that pretty much just guarantees they're going to spend the rest of their life in prison, shows you how incredibly um, fragile and dangerous these domestic uh, violence situations are. They really are. And they so often end so tragically. So 
The next day, which would have been the Friday after Thanksgiving, authorities identified a person of interest, a man whom Leslie Reeves had previously been in a relationship with, Robert Tarr, 48 years old, a resident of Collinsville, Illinois, which is about 10 miles west of Troy, where Leslie lived. So that day, Montgomery County Sheriff's deputies executed a search warrant at Tar's home. Neighbors told police that Tar had arrived at his house just after midnight. So that would be the Wednesday, the night before Thanksgiving, into Thanksgiving. So it's that midnight we're talking about, the night that Leslie was murdered. That he arrived quote, disheveled and upset, according to court records. The state's attorney says that license plate readers picked up Tar's Volkswagen Jetta in the area around the crime and that cameras place Tar's car back home after midnight, which seems to line up with the timeline and with what neighbors saw. So here's the other thing. Investigators say that his car had been freshly washed and the floorboard was still soaking wet. Investigators claimed to have found a text message that indicated that Tar knew Leslie was with Christopher at his house that night, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, what do you make of the car no. being wet? Because if their bodies, well, right. right, if both of them were found in, in Christopher's house, I'm trying to figure out why is he washing his car? I thought that was odd. It, it's you, you see situations where somebody washes their car where they put evidence in the car. You know, a body's in the car. Bloody clothes are in the car. Something's in the car. Um, I thought it was odd based on the information I've read, which is not much that's publicly available. It didn't seem like there'd be any reason to wash the car. I think there was even a reference that the floorboard was still wet. Yeah. You know, um, it could potentially be something like his shoes. Let's say, you know, I, I, I'll give you one hypothetical. Uh, he, there may have been blood on the floor in the house. He steps in the blood. There's blood now on the floorboard of his car. So he's got to wash it out. I don't think he washed the outside of the car. Probably washed the inside floorboard where your feet would be. That would make sense to me. Um, another thing I want to point out about the text is I don't want to make it sound out like um, we don't know if it was if he found out her location from a text between you know, Tar and Leslie Reeves or Tar and somebody else. It could have been a third party, you know, could have been one of her friends, one of his friends. Another thing I want to comment on what you said, I thought it was a little strange. I mean, I'm a little skeptical, to be honest with you, about neighbors at 12 o'clock noticing him being upset and disheveled. I mean, guys coming home at 12 at night, who, how do they see this? Where are they at? I mean, unless they're walking their dog in front of his house. Yeah. I just wonder what that's all about. Um, well, you know, I, I, there's this expression that the English have, and they've shared with it, shared it with me here uh, through YouTube. And they're called, they call them uh, curtain twitchers. You know, the people who yeah. are constantly watching. Busybodies. Busybodies, yeah. It could be. I, I don't know what any of that means. And remember, we're only being given bits and pieces through right. court records. So who knows what else they would have seen and why the neighbors would have noticed something could have happened. There could have been a noise. Um, we, we don't know, but it is, it is interesting. And the timeline certainly is lining up there, right? 
Right, right. So um, Tar is being held on suspicion of first-degree murder and attempted murder. Bond was initially set at $2 million, but now it's been raised to $3 million. And at the arraignment, according to the Edwardsville Intelligencer newspaper, Tar began to speak in court, but was cut off by his appointed attorney, Brenda Mathis. And she said... Quote, my advice to you right now would be to let me do the talking. Okay, hold on. Then he says, this is Tar. Tar tells the judge, well, I plan on seeking my own counsel. Okay. My opinion, I think Mr. Tar has a problem with women. Okay. (laughs) You know, clearly he's having a problem with with his attorney and this man is charged with a very serious crime, and he's really going to start pulling this crap in court? Come on. Absolutely. I, I, I loved her comment to him, um, you know, uh, about let me do the talk. And I tell you, the mistake he made, it sounds like he did talk to some police officers because I read that he initially said he didn't know where Farmersville was at. He had never left the house. Well, uh, that was a huge mistake because now they've disproved that they, they've they've now shown his car left, uh, you know, the premises through the uh, plate reader. So, you know, he shouldn't have talked to anybody, uh, but he did. But I had the same reaction you did to the in-court statement with his female court-appointed lawyer who was yeah. doing her job, uh, absolutely doing her job. And I loved her quote. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me do the talking. Yeah, it's probably a wise idea. The St. Louis Dispatch and other newspapers are reporting that Leslie Reeves leaves behind a son and a daughter who are believed to be in middle school. So the continued tragedy here and the trauma, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch quotes a friend of Leslie who explains how Leslie protected the women in her life who were being chased by abusers. She said that confidentiality often meant life or death for her clients and that she would constantly be moving her classes to different locations so that only those who were invited would know where the class was being held. So again, Isn't that incredible? it is, it, it, it really is. You got to move the location of the classes because you're worried about safety issues. It's, um, you know, uh, Andy, I used to be a volunteer at a domestic violence center here in Los Angeles for a long time. And, um, this was an incredible place because, you know, when you look at domestic violence, you must look at the entire picture. And in this complex, they had permanent housing. So the family could move in. They had an approved and licensed school and teachers inside the complex. So the children could be taught without having to register at a school because that's how abusers find the family through school records. So this place had thought of it all. And the one thing that they did that I, I loved, I loved everything that they did was at Halloween, my son and I would always volunteer for this at Halloween. It was a very big complex. They would take refrigerator boxes and paint them like houses. And then you'd have volunteers inside the little box. Um, and my son was one of them. And then the children would come and they were trick or treat from painted refrigerator box house to painted refrigerator box house so they could have the experience of what it is to have a Halloween and to be safe. So 
anyone in the world of helping people with domestic violence realize that you can't for a minute ever let your guard down. So the fact that she constantly moved her classes meant she truly got the danger. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, she was doing incredible work. Um, it, it, it's it's such a sad case on so many levels. And I think also the point I wanted to make is there's a lot of people, you know, some people have resources more than others. You may be the victim of domestic violence and you can move. You can move out of state. You can move in with family. You can maybe afford to, uh, you know, go somewhere else. There's so many people that don't have those options. They and don't sometimes have family resources. is not safe. You know, Andy, right. sometimes you cannot right. go to family because they will find you there. That yeah. is why, you know, the sense of complete anonymity, changing your name, registering the utilities under different names, it's 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 never ending. So it, this is a horrific tragedy to a woman who was a champion for those who were living in fear, and now she has been silenced. Very, very sad. Bef before yeah. we move on to our next case, we've got a, um, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next case is also out of Illinois. And Andy, this is the case in which you're trying to prove that the man charged with killing three women is actually innocent. Your client, Chester Weger, who is now 82 years old, worked at the lodge where the three women were staying. The three were killed while hiking. He was convicted of one murder, but he did not stand trial for the other two. So... What is it now that he's been paroled that you think that you can change in this case that is so old? Well, I always in these in these post conviction cases I get involved with, I always start with the forensics. You know, I'm never going to prove somebody's innocence with a he said, she said. I always look at the forensics. And, you know, this is 1960. There were no forensics back then. You know, I mean, I mean it was very little. And so. What I always wanted to do was to see if there was physical evidence still around that we could test. Uh, good news is there was. We got access to it. We inspected it. There was a ton of evidence in incredible condition. We isolated about eight uh, specific pieces of evidence, mostly hairs found on the victims. And we got court approval to test those. And in fact, I'm going out to the sheriff's office tomorrow we're going to package up that evidence, ship it out to a lab in Virginia, and hopefully get the results back early next year. What do you think that the evidence will show you? Well, I'm hoping that there is DNA that we can get from these hairs. Some of the hairs look like they have roots. We could do mitochondrial DNA testing. There were um, other suspects who we know of. You can also input you know, this DNA into databases. You can put it into family trees. Um, there's all kinds of advanced ways now we can try to connect the dots. Um, I already know from 1960, a hair that was found on one of the victims uh, was sent to Washington University in St. Louis to be analyzed. And a report was generated that said it was dissimilar to Chester Weger's hair. Uh, they didn't produce that to him at the time because you know why? In 1960, there was, the Supreme Court had not decided Brady versus Maryland which came out in 1963, which says the state has to share 
any potential exculpatory evidence with the accused. Think about this. Wow. Think about being arrested at a time when the state doesn't have to tell you about evidence that could potentially exonerate you. I mean, I've got the report now. It's a written report. If Chester Weigel would have, I mean, and the fact that the state tested that hair, sent it out, the FBI sent it to the Washington University Medical School, shows you they thought it was significant evidence. They were hoping it came back linked to Chester Weigel. It came back and it wasn't, you know? So there's a bunch of other hair evidence that we're gonna test. There's cigarette butts, there's some twine. Um, I always think the forensics is the way you have to go because the forensics is science, it's not advocacy. I could make a lot of good arguments right now on why I think he's innocent based on non-forensic evidence, um, but forensic evidence is always the starting point. So this happened in March of 1960, correct? I wanna make sure for yes. those of us you know, who are not familiar with this yeah. case. It was- um, six, it, six zero, 1960, 6-0. I wasn't yeah. even born yet. Oh my God. And what's so ironic is to say to Chester Weger when he gets arrested, don't worry, Mr. Weger, there's a little boy who's going to be born in two years. And when he gets to be an attorney and he's already been an attorney for 30 years, then I'll take up your case and maybe we can try to prove your innocence. So just sit tight for the next 60 years and we'll try to, you know, be patient. It, it's incredible. And he went up for parole how many times? More than 20, almost 30? Yeah, I think he was successful on the 24th time. And you know what caught my eye about the case uh, as a little backstory, I was representing another gentleman who was up for parole the same day, a guy named Cleve Heidelberg, who I actually got out of prison after 47 years. And what struck me at the time was uh, both guys had their parole denied, but just like my client Cleve Heidelberg, Chester Weger had maintained his innocence for half a century. When, when you're up for parole, you know, your first step if you want to get out is to always express remorse mm -hmm. and say, hey, I'm sorry. You know, it's been 50 years. It's been 40 years, you know. And Chester Weger never did that. Cleve Heidelberg never did that. So I was like, wow, I wonder, this guy just sounds like Cleve Heidelberg's twin brother. I wonder if there's more to the story. So I wrote him a letter. I went down to see him and lo and behold, you know, uh, four years later, here I am today on the verge of shipping out evidence to be tested. Wow. You chose him. He didn't choose you. That's so yeah, fascinating. You know, I mean, I just, and the other thing was the next day in the paper. So my client was denied parole. There was a big article about Chester Weaver, the Star of Rock murders. I never heard of it. I was, you know, I, it was 1960. Um, but what struck me also was it was a confession only case. There was no physical evidence linking Mr. Weger to the scene. And what was also powerful to me was there was an interview with the one remaining juror who was alive, 92 year old Nancy Porter. And she said in this article that she regretted her guilty verdict. She thought his confession, and I'll use air quotes, uh, was implausible. And then I, when I put all this together, I thought, you know what? I love these stories where it may not be what you think it is. Mm -hmm. And the red flag to me was him maintaining his innocence for half a century. Um, and it was so much like my client, Cleve Heidelberg, who was in the same boat, who refused to say he had any guilt, refused to express remorse. And so it was my curiosity and wanting to hear more about him 
that led me to contact him. And if I would have done that and started digging and it didn't go anywhere, I would have just, you know, gone my separate way. But the more I dug, the more red flags, the more I was like, oh my gosh, there's more stuff here. So these were dubbed the Starved Rock murders because it happened at a state park, which is about 90 miles southwest of Chicago, just to give everyone an idea of what we're talking about. And so it was March 14th of 1963. Women decided who were staying at the Starved Rock Lodge decided to go on a hike. They had lunch, they went on their hike. And then two days later, their bodies were found in a cave. The victims are 50-year-old Lillian Otting. Is that correct? Oding. Oding. Frances Murphy, 47, and Mildred Linquist, 50. So the Chicago Tribune at the time reported that they were bound, partially nude, bludgeoned to death, each having injuries consistent, suffering with something like 100 blows each. And authorities believed that the killer or killers caused the catastrophic head injuries by swinging a frozen tree limb that was found nearby and stained with blood. And 21-year-old Chester Weger was a dishwasher at the lodge that they were staying at. He was married. He had two children. How did he ever become a suspect? You know, uh, that's a good question. I think what happened is eventually, so the murders, like you said, happened in March. Chester Weger's not arrested until November. Okay. Uh, this was a, this was the kind of OJ Simpson case of the day back then in 1960. Uh, for those who are, you know, older, there was a magazine called Life Magazine that, back then. It came out, it came out weekly. It was a national publication. Life Magazine covered the Star Rock murders. It was a national news story. This was a case that the, the, the state wanted solved, the police wanted solved, everybody wanted solved. And basically, even though Chester Weger had passed several polygraphs over the in the first month and a half, um, they learned they there was a claim that he had a prior rape when he was younger, which he disputes. Uh, I think that put him on, you know, as as a more of a person of interest. And then even though he had passed multiple polygraphs, they felt the need to take him to Chicago to give him another polygraph. And on the way, it's admitted they threatened him with the death penalty. We now know in false confessions, one of the leading causes is threats of death. And then he comes back to, you know, the Starve Rock area. They continue to hound him, surveil him, threaten him. And he ultimately confesses. I mean, I think they had to find a fall guy. He's 21 years old, uneducated, works at the lodge. And, you know, it was just a horrible, horrible situation that they wanted to put this case to bed. So where is he now? He's finally been paroled. He's finally paroled. He's he's living... um, you know, in downstate Illinois, um, uh, he's 82. Um, it's, it's just, he's free, but you know, his life has been taken from him. You know, I mean, he's 60 years in prison, you know, I mean, he's 82 years old. Um, so the case had so many red flags to me and, um, that's why I continued to spend the time working on the case because I really, uh, believed in, in Chester and his innocence And the more I dug, uh, the more I found. And the documentary that will be airing on HBO is about Chester's case? 
The documentary is about the Starve Rock murders. Yes. So it's about Chester's case. Um, wow. it, it's going to be three one hour episodes. They're going to show the first two episodes, December 14th on HBO. And then on December 15th, they'll show the third. And I'm actually hoping that there'll be an episode sometime next year, which would be the fourth and final episode that I'm hoping has a happy ending. I've got my fingers crossed. Um, but they're going to tell the story of the Starve Rock murders and how it was this big, big case back in the day that most people haven't heard of. Told um, a lot of it from the viewpoint of the there was a, a man named Anthony Reculia who was the prosecutor back in the day. His son, David, uh, always was kind of fascinated by the case and himself was thinking about making a documentary movie, filmed a bunch of footage over the years. And it's kind of about now the son of the prosecutor on this journey for the truth. Oh, I love you know, it. it. It's a really interesting story. Um, and, you know, I like I said, I, I just... I spent so much time on it. It's been it's been a big part of me, you know, in the time I spent the last several years. I bet. I bet. Well, um, please come back and tell us how this story ends. I would love to. I, I hope to come back and I hope I'm telling you uh, a happy ending. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping a lot of times with DNA testing, you know, uh, you may not get results. Uh, you may not get definitive results. Um, there's a lot of different ways this could go. Uh, I'm hoping for a resolution. I'm hoping for the truth. You know, I always tell people I've, I've helped several people get out of prison. I've had a lot of people reach out to me who want me to help them. I always tell people I call them like I see them, you know, and uh, I have also represented police officers for years. So I've seen the other side of it. I've seen people claim wrongful convictions that weren't wrongfully convicted. You know, some people are, some people aren't. And like I said, I call them like I see them. I try to look at the forensic first and foremost because the forensics is science. And if I believe you're innocent, you will have no bigger advocate than me. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on social media. Our producer, Owen Michael, is with us now. Police and firefighters responded to a fire alarm at an assisted living facility in Greenwood, South Carolina last week. Officers were advised that possible gunshots were heard at this assisted living facility. Greenwood police later clarified, quote, at this time, it appears the fire was started because the resident placed several rounds of ammunition into a toaster oven, causing the ammunition to discharge and making employees believe that a shooter was on the property. Fire was quickly extinguished and uh, no one was injured. Everybody's safe. Thank goodness. Bobby, C Bobby G says, uh, guess somebody got bored at the old nursing home last night and was looking to liven things up. Uh, we can make a little bit of uh, light on this since no one was injured. Sabrina G said, them old folks in Greenwood are wild. <laughs> Kelly S said, uh, the police and fire departments and emergency services should bill for services rendered to teach this fool a lesson. And Perry B says, I see a new mailing address in this person's future. It <laughs> could be. That's an odd thing to do in a toaster oven. I, <laughs> uh, nothing surprises me anymore. But yeah, that seems like uh, uh, the last place you'd want to store your ammunition. Um, there's all sorts of conjecture about how that, uh, how exactly that happened. But, um, you know, people store things in their ovens, in their cold ovens, sometimes in their freezers. I think maybe uh, this particular one, maybe keep it in the freezer. 
anyway, it's a good reminder for everybody to please uh, be careful and cautious with guns and ammunition. Not in the toaster oven. Clearly. Clearly. Okay. Well, thank you, Owen. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye, guys. See you next week. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the program. You're fascinating. The work you do is amazing. Where can people find you or follow you on social media? Two places on Twitter, Andy M. Hale Esquire, ESQ. We have updates on there all the time on wrongful convictions, projects we're working on. Also, my website, HaleMonaco.com. We have articles about wrongful convictions. We've got links to trailers, some of the documentary projects we've done, all kinds of information on there as well. And you can see the bio for me and you can reach out to me as well on the website. You can find me on social media at Anna G News. You can also find all our episodes of our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to True Crime Daily's YouTube channel and you can sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until then, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We thank you. And as we always say, don't do crime. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there's a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.